Our scripture reading tonight is the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. And Luke chapter 7, we'll be reading the first uh, 23 verses. Luke chapter uh, 7, beginning at verse 1. Listen, this is God's Word. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What a difference reading a book is when you know how the story ends. Maybe you're reading it through for the second or third or multiple times, but you know the outcome, and now you are reading again through the earliest pages and 
all of those details, once uh, a mystery to you, or at least once holding all this potential, they all are falling into place for you. Well, this is a supplemental or a companion sermon to our walking through the life of Elisha, uh, and as we have through the life of Elijah uh, in the morning sermons. And I am not going to take you all the way back to the beginning where God created the whole world and us to radiate and to reflect his glory, Um, but I guess I just did. The nearer context to Luke chapter 7 begins in Luke chapters 3 and 4. The beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He was baptized by John, the same John the Baptist who shows up in this story. He is set upon by the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. He is publicly marked and identified as the beloved Son of God by that voice from heaven, his Father, in whom uh, he was uh, well pleased. Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And he arrives uh, out of the wilderness and lands in his hometown. And he shows up on, uh, in the synagogue and is asked to read scripture, is handed a scroll uh, from the prophet Isaiah. He begins to read, and he's reading at what we now know to be chapter 61. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops just short of this line in Isaiah 61. He does not say this, and the day of judgment of our God. People are amazed at his gracious words. And, of course, in, uh, for Jesus and his sermon, his application is very brief, or his explication of Isaiah 51, all he says at that point is, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, of course, he is the one anointed by the Spirit to do these good things. And of course, in Luke chapter 4, it's, it's remarkable how they go from being in awe of him or amazed by him and, and commending his good words uh, to just a few verses later, they want to throw him off a cliff. And so it's worth asking always, what happens in those intervening moments? What changes? And we come to learn, Jesus uh, realizes they expected him to do some miraculous things in his hometown, as he had been doing. And instead, Jesus cites the examples of Elijah and Elisha to explain why he's not doing that. And he says this, There were many widows in Israel, but Elijah went outside the land. He went to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And then he says there are many lepers in the day of Elisha, but Elisha cleansed only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, what Jesus is saying, as in Elijah and Elisha's day, with rampant unbelief among the very people of God who ought to have known him, loved him, worshipped him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, in the light of that unbelief, the good news of God's kingdom was starting to go outside of the boundaries of the land. And as in Elijah's day and Elisha's day, 
So Jesus places himself even in his own hometown and expresses his concerns about the unbelief in his hometown and in the land. And there was plenty of unbelief in Israel, and God's good news of restoration and renewal is going to go to all the nations across the globe. That is, the gospel of his son, this good news spoken by this very one in his own hometown synagogue, was going to extend beyond Israel, beyond the borders, to reach the entire globe God had made. And that gets us to this cluster of three stories in uh, chapter 7, three little snapshots of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he says, and what he does, what the good news is all about. And in these stories, as we get this little bonus message tonight, uh, some of the stories we're hearing in Elijah's life, or as we come to them in Elisha's world, are going to make even more sense for you. You'll find there a kind of extra measure or level of richness and even complexity, but you'll hear resonances in those Old Testament stories that remind you everything is pointing to and finding its ultimate fulfillment and culmination in Jesus Christ. So these three stories, we'll take a look at each one briefly tonight and, and then pull this together. Notice first the story of the centurion's servant. Somehow there's this wealthy and semi-powerful non-Jewish Gentile military leader and he has a servant he loves, he values treasures worth a lot to him who's near death. And this man has friends in high places in the Jewish community. Probably has something to do with the fact that he built them a church building or a synagogue. They think he is an excellent candidate for Jesus to come and meet or to do something good for this servant in a clearly quid pro quo kind of way. He is worthy, they say. Notice his first words to Jesus. Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy. Simply say the word and let let my servant be healed. And then do not miss the words of Jesus who both commends him for his faith. Afterward, they discover the servant is healed. But he says this, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And Jesus is being, I think, uh, more than hyperbolic. I don't think, or rather, I think he's not being just simply hyperbolic. Well, this is the greatest amount of faith I've come to see yet in this point. But he's making the point that there's this outsider, this Gentile, who has such confidence in Jesus, he sends an entourage and says, you know, come, and, and they, come, they want him to come. And then he, and they says, don't, don't, you don't need to come, just say the word. And the servant will be healed. This man is profoundly self-aware. He knows he has a need. He knows he can't, for whatever money and military might he has, he cannot fix his problem. He knows he's unworthy, but he knows Jesus. He's heard about him. He's heard about him. And he believes Jesus has the power to heal even from a distance. And without probably knowing even all the import of what he is saying, he draws this analogy. He makes a reference to those who answer to him. 
I say go and they go. I say jump and they say how high. I say come and they come. I say do this and they do that. He's giving a little picture, actually, of Jesus himself, the Son of God who both answers to the Father, but who also comes with all of the authority and the power of his Father in heaven who has an unquestioned and absolute military-like authority over illness and disease, who can do things by speaking. And that God himself is at work in and through this his son, Jesus, who is not confined or, or limited by, uh, by space or uh, with a particular need to be in the very presence of a person he's going to heal, and, and that yet he will demonstrate the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God for this servant and will respond to the faithful uh, faith reaching out to Jesus kind of prayer of the centurion. And of him, Jesus says, this is remarkable. He's not one of us. And yet he has greater faith than anyone in Israel. And they go home and they find out the servant is well. We are, of course, invited to not only commend this centurion for his faith, but to copy that faith. To not only hear about Jesus, but to trust in him and to believe that he's able <clears throat> to extend the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God to us from a distance, which he does by his spirit. Second story in this uh, little collection here is the story of the widow's son. <clears throat> Luke moves along quickly, very seamlessly really, to verse 11 and to another scene. Luke, Jesus is about to enter the town of Nain. And you can put this in your <coughs> future reference. Uh, the town of Nain is about three or four miles from the town of Shunem, just for later. That happens to be the next stop in uh, Elisha's trip. But Jesus is here accompanied by his disciples. A large crowd is coming with him and following him. And as he approaches the town, he's met by a large crowd coming out. And it is, of course, a funeral procession. They are on their way to the cemetery. He meets the pallbearers and the body, and the body's being carried out, probably on a stretcher, probably wrapped in uh, some kind of cloth, and, and Luke paints this really pathetic picture for us. The deceased is a man, a young man, who happens to be a son. And notice how quickly Luke turns our attention from the son to the mother. He does this by using the same word to describe the young man as the Apostle John uses in his gospel in chapter 316. He's the only begotten son of his mother. <clears throat> She's a widow. There's a considerable uh, crowd from the town <clears throat> with her to join in her mourning. It's probably uh, a noisy procession. And again, it is a really pathetic picture. You see, parents are supposed to die before their children. Sons are supposed to take care of and then perpetuate the name of their parents. Or if you really want to know, death isn't supposed to happen at all. That's not the way God made the world. And everything is just turned upside down for this poor widow. Her husband has already died. She's on her way to the cemetery. When she comes back, she'll be all alone. 
a single, sad, solitary woman. And we come to this bottleneck, really, at the town gate, and the crowd is coming out, meeting a crowd coming in, and it's reduced, these two crowds are reduced to two people, Jesus and the woman. It becomes a kind of showdown between uh, death and life. Everything slows down in the story. The crowds are there to watch. And before we can even ask the question, what will Jesus do? Jesus begins to act. And again, we already know the outcome of the story. But notice he looks past the body. He looks to the grieving mother. And if we had to summarize what happens next, we could say he came, he saw, he had compassion. Jesus is moved by this. will not be the first time, but he's moved by compassion. He's close enough to see her tears, to hear her crying, to make sense of this situation. And he says to her, do not weep. Which, if that were the only thing he said and did, would be rather cruel, or at least insulting. She has every reason to weep. This is at least the second time Death has visited her family. All she has is gone. She's all alone. But of course it gets better, and what happens next is even more remarkable. Jesus approaches uh, the stretcher, and he's apparently unconcerned about uh, the potential for becoming unclean by being near or touching anything unclean. And even greater than this, he starts to speak to the dead man. Again, we... Remember this happens, something like this happens with uh, Lazarus, but it's remarkable, isn't it, that Jesus gives a command to a man who's unable to even hear the command, let alone perform it. Young man, I say to you, arise, he's dead. Young man, I say to you, arise, he's dead. And then he's not. The dead man hears the voice of Jesus. He sits up. And he begins to speak. I wish Luke had told us what he said, but he doesn't. And then again, the story doesn't even end there. Luke tells us Jesus gives the man back to his mother. You see, Jesus is interested in restoring life and reversing death, but more in this story, he is interested in making this woman whole, or at least more whole than she was. He restores her family. He restores the only son she loved. He fixes her economy. He renews her social status. He brings joy to her broken heart. And as with the story of the centurion's servant, this resurrection miracle is as great as it is. Uh, the restoration of the woman, as wonderful as it was, is still not the end of the story. In fact, the, uh, this life-giving illustration leads to a great reaction on the part of the crowd. We've almost forgotten about the two crowds because we've been drawn in to see Jesus and this woman and, and the dead body between them now alive. But Luke pans out and, and has us see the, the crowds again. And notice the crowd goes through a few phases here. They see, they saw what happened. They interpret what happened and then they speak about what happened. Verse 16, fear seized them all. They glorified God, saying, a great prophet 
has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report of Jesus spreads through the whole of Judea and to the surrounding country. They're amazed. But they interpret this as if uh, to say Jesus is a great prophet. God has raised him up. God has finally visited his people. And then that report starts to spread. What kind of a man can do something like this? What kind of man can say to a dead man, son, arise? And he does. And there's really only one possible answer. He's got to be a prophet from the Lord. Their interpretation of what they have just seen comes down to this. Surely this man has access to the very power of God. And he has the affirmation and confirmation of God in that he is able to speak and to bring about results like life from death. And they all glorified God, Luke tells us. And this, of course, is a real-time fulfillment of the synagogue sermon in chapter 4. And the point Luke is making, even as the crowds begin to uh, start to comprehend this, that Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and, and the other Old Testament prophets were great prophets. But Jesus is even greater Those Old Testament prophets, some of them were able to heal and to even make alive. But they were all pointing to uh, this greater prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, whom Luke, for the first time in his gospel here, calls the Lord. God has visited his people. John the Baptist's father, you might remember, had a nine-month forced silence. When his lips were finally opened, he said this, filled with the Holy Spirit, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. The Lord has visited us. And they, this crowd now echoes that in what Jesus has just done. Jesus is indeed the prophet of God. He's the ultimate expression of God coming to, visiting, speaking to, and and accompanying with his words great signs of confirmation and signs that give pictures of what the word is about to do. And Luke gives us a little bit of insight into who Jesus is. And and remember, these are still essentially Old Testament Israelites. Jesus has just really entered the scene after years, centuries of silence on the Lord's part. And they interpret this to be a sign, his presence, his activity. They interpret to be a sign of the Lord's presence, speaking, acting, the Lord's favor. And as the story gets spread, as this news gets spread, you have these little pictures or reminiscences, I hope, of of what happens on Pentecost, the word uh, going from Jerusalem and to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the whole world. But once again, Jesus, not bound by social conventions or borders or uh, gender or ethnic uh, kinds of setups that you might imagine in a culture like that comes and says to this woman, I want to make you well. I want to make you whole by restoring life, by also ministering to a centurion, a Gentile, 
I want to restore the health of your servant. God is glorified when death is defeated, when life is restored. And the news of these events spreading around the world reaches a certain man in prison, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. We know he's in prison from Matthew chapter 11. We know he's there because he took a stand against, the, against Herod and Herodias in their marriage. But notice the third episode in this story is uh, we have these disciples coming from John the Baptist with this question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And I won't spend the time trying to defend this, but I'm quite confident we can say Jesus treats this as a real question from John the Baptist. This wasn't simply a test for his disciples. It wasn't uh, just for an occasion to fill out a story. John has some real questions about Jesus. And that can be puzzling to us because we can say, well, isn't this John who had baptized Jesus and who had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes us away the sin of the world, his own flesh and blood cousin. But I think we can make sense of John's question sent by his disciples, especially because of the answer Jesus gives. How could John be asking, in some ways, bringing into question his own whole reason for being? But isn't it most likely John, too, was wrestling with the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God in Christ? His own message, you remember, had been, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near Uh, The reign and the rule of God is about to break out in Israel and it's going to come in fire and in judgment. And John, in prison, could have been asking, where's the fire? Are you the one who's to come? Are you going to unleash the wrath of God soon? Should we be expecting another, someone who's going to come wielding that axe at the root of the tree? John and so many others had a vision of the coming of the Messiah. It was going to come in mercy, but also with judgment. It was going to come with judgment, and it was going to come with mercy. And in his mind, the attributes of judgment seemed to overshadow the manifestations of mercy, or at least to he imagined, as so many did, they would come simultaneously. And all John is hearing about in prison are reports of blind people seeing, and of people getting better. All he's hearing about are acts of mercy, the compassion of Christ. And amazingly, as Luke tells it in verse 21, as these disciples come to Jesus and ask this question, are you the one or should we be waiting for another? It's as if Jesus just ignores them. Luke says he, kept, he, he goes on healing diseases and Plagues and casting out evil spirits and giving, gifting sight to the blind. And only then, or at least the way Luke tells the stories, if only then after another display of his healing grace and mercy does he turn to the disciples and begin to answer their question. Go, tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. And he gives a summary of the prophet Isaiah again. 
or you might even say a summary of the kinds of lives and ministries of Elisha especially, but evident as well in Elijah. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf have their hearing restored, and the dead are raised up. You see, Isaiah had foretold of a great servant of the Lord. And you miss the point if you think that the coming of the kingdom of God is not accompanied by or even defined by healing and restoration and renewal and compassion and mercy. Judgment will come. So you're half right. But remember that quotation from Isaiah 61 he read in the synagogue back in Luke, 64, uh, Luke 4, today is the day of salvation, the day of the Lord's favor. Dot, 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 because the day of judgment is coming. Blessed is the one who, Jesus says, who does not fall away or who is not offended by me. Blessed is he who accepts my word, who embraces my ministry, and who by that faith in me stands. The one who receives and reaches out for the compassion and the mercy and the kindness of a God who wants to restore from death to life. You see, John, of course, John the Baptist was right. God's judgment was coming. But the twist in the story is that the judgment is unleashed on Jesus making it possible for all who believe in him to receive the mercy and the salvation and the restoration and the renewal Jesus held out to them. It's a mercy and a salvation he demonstrates in his life, in his words, in his deeds, in healing a centurion servant from afar, in restoring life to a dead young man and restoring him to his mother. And to say to John, this is what the kingdom is about. The judgment that is coming is coming in a different way than you might have expected because the judgment gets turned on to Jesus himself that you who trust and believe in him might receive nothing but mercy and compassion and grace and restoration and renewal. And so we hear these words of Jesus, a day is coming when God himself will be with us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That old order of things will have passed away finally and fully to be replaced by a new order. It's what Jesus came to inaugurate, to initiate, to announce. He does it in word and in deed and we can do no less. We speak to others, but we act with the grace and the kindness and the compassion and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Even as we can tell people, yes, a judgment is coming, but you can escape it if you rest and trust in the one who can heal you from a distance by simply saying the word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways our Old Testament walk and journey through the lives of Elijah and Elisha find uh, so much fulfillment and Completion in the life of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus saves. That he does this from a distance. He does it by speaking his word. Lord, we believe in him and trust in him. How we thank you too for the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. 
Lord, give us renewed confidence and trust that he is the one who came. And we have no reason to look for any other. Lord, renew our faith. Give us rest. Delight our hearts with the joy of our salvation. Help us in every way to exalt our Savior in our words and in our conduct as we seek to imitate him and communicate and carry his message to this world around us. We ask it in his name until he returns. And we say together, amen.